we're going to start reading some verses from Genesis, the very beginning, Genesis, start from Genesis 1-1. That's really the very beginning, isn't it? (laughs) So Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 7, which we already read yesterday. Let's read it again. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the, into the garden, in the garden of Eden, to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you, f- you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat for, of it you shall surely die. Chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more cu- cu- cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the, to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now let's turn to the very end, well, almost the very end of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Zechariah. Can you find that? (laughs) So a little help. Go to Matthew. I hope you can find that. And come back. Malachi, Zechariah. So it's very easy. Zechariah. Very end of the Old Testament. Chapter 12. Verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, 
and forms the spirit of man within him. I want to stress the last sentence. And forms, the Lord forms the spirit of man within him. New Testament now, John chapter 4 and verse 24. Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 18. Second Corinthians again, chapter 4, verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And finally, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, that I hope that by now you all know by heart, is the theme verse of this conference. Galatians chapter 5. And verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let's have a further word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your wonderful promise that where two or three are gathering your name, you are there in their midst. We thank you for your wonderful promise that you would be with us even to the end of the age. And as we come, Lord, to consider your word, to meditate together on your word, we thank you because you have left us the Holy Spirit, who is the one that leads us into all truth who is the one that reveals the things of God to us. And we thank you, Lord, because we do not need to approach your word based on our own understanding, our own intellectual capability. Actually, we cannot do so. So as we come into this time, we want to place ourselves under the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit and acknowledge that only by the enlightenment and teaching of your Holy Spirit we can get anything that is of value for this time. So we pray, Lord, that there would be in this time that liberty that there is in the Holy Spirit, that indeed He would take charge of this time and would enable the speaking of Your Word, the hearing of Your Word. And we, may, we pray all these things that You may receive all the glory and have much fruit for Your glory. We thank You, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' precious name. All right, so as, as we're getting started, I just briefly want to review a couple of things from yesterday before we go into new territory this morning. And as we saw yesterday, this matter that we're considering in this conference, walking in the Spirit, actually it has a source. Spiritual life 
is the source for spiritual walk. And that's a very, very important principle, which is actually exactly what I'm so grateful that our theme verse says it all. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You see, there is a correlation there. You cannot start just from the later, the, the later part of the verse. For you to walk in the Spirit, you need to have a life in the Spirit. And that's the principle that John chapter 3 explains in a lot of details. How do we get in the first place this life in the Spirit, which is the basis for our walk in the Spirit? And that's what we learn from that wonderful conversation between Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus. And to just recap, a couple of points that are fundamental in that. The way we enter into this life in the Spirit is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do so, we are born again. We are born from above, from another source, not from our parents. That's the first birth. We are born from the Spirit. And this is a born from above. It's a heavenly, born, a heavenly birth. How was that birth made possible? Because the Lord Jesus Christ suffered in the cross for us. It's as simple as that. That is the end of the conversation. When Nicodemus asks, how can these things happen? How can a man be born again? The Lord answers in a lengthy answer. And at the end of that answer, he says, well, no one ascended to heaven except the one that came down from heaven, he himself. And he, the, the implication here is if we are going to be born from above, a heavenly being has to cause that to happen. Only the Lord Jesus can give us this heavenly life. And when he, died, when he was lifted on the cross, as that serpent in the Old Testament, when he, wa when he was nailed to that cross, that happened, that we might be born again. As we sing so often, He died that we may be born. What a wonderful grace. What a privilege, brothers and sisters. This is the life that you have received when you believed in the Lord Jesus. And this is the source for spiritual walk. So to walk in the Spirit, actually, is something very, very simple, if you think it well. You know, all you need to, to know, to, to have, is a new life that is capable of walking. And the whole implication in John chapter 3, the whole point of that conversation between Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus, is that the Lord is trying to make is making very clear to Nicodemus the natural life that we receive from our parents is absolutely incapable of walking in the Spirit, of living in the Spirit, of even perceiving the things of God. That's why we need a new life. You see, if this old life that we have, uh, if this life that, as, as our brother Dana yesterday night put it so well, if this life that we are born with from our parents if that was capable of walking in the Spirit or of even understanding the things of God, you know, there would be no need for a new life. The reason why you receive a new life is because the first one is absolutely incapable of anything that is spiritual. That's why the Lord is saying, you need something new. It's totally new. It's not the Lord trying to improve your old life. It's not that now you were very careless. That's why you're such a sinner, right? Because you're you know, very careless and you're not paying attention. And now you need to pay more attention and try to obey the commandments. You know, work harder and everything will be okay. No. It will never happen that way. It's only a new life from above that can cause us to walk in the Spirit. 
And that life from above, thank the Lord, is given to everyone that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege. Uh, I think I need to go back and clarify at least one more point. And I'm so grateful that our brother yesterday night made that point very clear. But let me go again through it. The fact that we are born from above, when we believe in the Lord Jesus, does not mean that automatically you will walk in the Spirit. You see, when you are born from above, you have a life in you which is capable of walking in the Spirit. The potential, the possibility to walk in the Spirit is there. From the moment that we believe in the Lord Jesus. And that's the basis of it all. Thank the Lord. However, it does not mean that automatically you will walk in the Spirit. See? And that's actually a bit of a tragedy. Or I should say a huge tragedy. Uh, I suspect that the vast majority of Christians, unfortunately, of true Christians, born from above, that have the life of God in them, the vast majority have that life. They live in a sort of abnormal state. They have the life from above. They have the capability. The potential is there. And however, where is the walk in the Spirit? See, it's something abnormal for sure. That life is supposed to walk. But what a tragedy if you have the life and somehow the walk is not happening. And the two things, just to kind of conclude the recap, the two keys in John chapter 3 that gives us some clues of why is there such problem? Why even though we have this life from above, there is still so much failure in walking in the Spirit? Well, two main things become very obvious from John chapter 3. First, Sometimes we have a hard time to understand that this new life is totally different from the old life. And somehow, even after we receive this new life, we are tempted to still live by the old life. See, when the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, whatever is born from flesh is flesh. Whatever is born from the Spirit is spirit. It's like the Lord is saying, they are totally different things. They, they have no overlap between each other. The things of the flesh are incapable of doing the things of the Spirit. And as our brother said yesterday, there is completely a complete enmity between these two realms. They have nothing in common. They are fighting against each other. And one of the great failures to walk in the Spirit is because we have a hard time in realizing that point in by revelation, understanding that the life in the flesh the life that we receive from our parents is incapable of anything that is spiritual. See, uh, another thing that I think we, we need to mention again is this. When the Lord is talking to Nicodemus, it's very, I'm, I'm so grateful for that, that the words that the Lord spoke to Nicodemus, He said it to a Nicodemus, and not to say the woman by the well. See, why? Because there is such a difference between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. The woman at the well, uh, in John chapter 4, we all know the story, and, and I hope you, most of us at least do. And, you know, it's a person that is, is living in moral struggle, in, in actually a very questionable moral life. You know, was marrying and remarrying five times, and was living with someone that was not even her husband. So uh, there is no question. It's a very low moral life. But how about Nicodemus? No, Nicodemus is the opposite. It's a very high standard, a great guy, a teacher in Israel. And however, the Lord says these words in John chapter 3 to that man. 
And that's a very important implication behind that. There is something very, a principle. See, the flesh that the Lord is talking in John chapter 3, verse 3, everything that is born of flesh is flesh. He's saying those words to Nicodemus. In other words, our flesh or the life that we receive from our parents is capable of very good things. It's not just the, the awful list that we find in Galatians chapter, chapter 5, right? The deeds of the flesh. And you have the list that our brother mentioned yesterday, and I read it actually. Terrible things. No one will ever dispute that. Oh, that's flesh. That's awful. But how about the good things that our flesh is capable of? You know, living in a good moral standard, having education, having knowledge, and having a lot of good things. That I, I Honestly, we should pursue those things. You see, the Lord is putting all those good things in that same category of something that will never, ever get us into anything that is of God. That's why we need to receive this new life. And that is why this is the basis for spiritual walk. I feel that there is, this is a major hindrance in our lives. And there are two ways that we cling to the old life. Sometimes in a very negative way, right? Of course, if you start pursuing things of the world, worldly things and passions of the flesh, you know, the lowest stuff, sinful stuff, of course, if you cling to that, you may, you, you may have been born from above. But if there is anything sinful in our life, that will prevent us from walking in the Spirit. And that is pretty obvious, isn't it? However, there is something that is more subtle here, that is nevertheless is also a hindrance, a huge one. We may be trying to pursue the things of God by the good part of our flesh, you see, do you have an example of that in the Bible? Hmm, let me see. Let me see a great man of God in the Bible. Paul. Any, any, anyone would dispute that? And here you find Paul in Romans chapter 7. You know, Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking in the present tense. You know, I, I hope you all remember what is there. There is the struggle of a very earnest man that really wants to please God. There is no pretense... There is nothing hypocritical. He really wants to please God. He's set to do that. And you know, this man, which is a great apostle, which is a great Christian, very earnest in that chapter 7 of Romans, he says in the present tense, he's not talking about his past, before he knew the Lord. He's saying about now. He says, you know what? The good that I will, I wish I could do, I cannot do. The bad things that I hate, I end up doing those things. He's talking in present tense. What, is the, what, what does that teach us? Well, here you have a man that is trying to live the Christian life. He's trying to walk in the Spirit by his old man. See, he's in the realm, I wish, his volition, his will. I really, my mind, you know, I'm trying to understand the law of God and trying to do it. But he's doing it all by his own energy. And that is a second way that the old life gets into the way. You see, very often we try to please the Lord, to be a good Christian, but in, on the basis of our old life, of our desire to please Him, of my own energy. Yeah, this time, you know, we stumble, we fail, we sin, and then we confess, thank the Lord for that, we should. But then we say, you know what, now I'm going to pay more attention, now I'm going to pray harder, and I'm going to try to be a better Christian, and that's it, that's the solution. And you know, at the end of that wonderful chapter, it's very sad in a sense. 
But every Christian needs to go through his own or her own Romans chapter 7. To get to that conclusion that Paul gets, he says at, at, at the middle of the chapter, in me there is no good at all. Oh, our eyes have to be open to see that fact. And essentially that gets us back with what the Lord said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, what is born from flesh is flesh. And after you're born again, don't think that your flesh became improved because you received the Lord Jesus. No, that never happens. Flesh will be flesh forever. Until the Lord Jesus comes back, that flesh, the root of sin will be inside of us. And that will never improve. However, the eyes of Paul at the end of that wonderful chapter are open to see that there is a deliverance for him. And he says at the end, after his, I cannot, I am trying, it's, I, I can't one day. That's a wonderful exercise. Read Romans chapter 7. I'll leave it as a homework. And please count how many times Paul uses the personal pronoun, I. Because see, I want, I am trying, I'm doing this, I cannot, I, 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 I. And at the end he says, Thank, after he says, wretched man I am. He's saying, I cannot do it. That's it, I give up. And at that point, the last verse of the chapter, he says, Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God for that new life that was given to us. That's it. That's his deliverance. And after that, what you have? You have Romans chapter 8. To me, is the most glorious chapter in the whole Bible. It's glory after... Why? Because it's the chapter of a man in the Holy Spirit. A man walking in the Spirit. You see, that's the secret of Christian life. And we need to see what the Lord told Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the flesh is flesh and it's going to ever be flesh. But what is born of the Spirit is spirit. May the Lord really lead us by His grace to take, to enter into this new life, to walk. Or let me put it in other ways. We need to live by the life that was given to us. That's the tragedy. You have the life in you if you believe in the Lord. But you may not live by that life. And then we'll never walk in the Spirit before that day. Well, there is a second reason or a second key. That's the first thing, right? We need to realize that the flesh is flesh, the Spirit is Spirit, and live by the Spirit. But the second thing that the Lord told Nicodemus, a picture of walking in the Spirit, the wind bloweth whatever it wants. And that's a picture of the Holy Spirit. The wind in the Bible always refers to the Holy Spirit. And that's the picture. The Holy Spirit has to have a sovereign place in our lives if we are going to walk in the Spirit. Until He's sovereign, until He is Lord, until I don't live to please myself, until I have that conscience, I have a master. I am not here just to have fun. I'm not here just to pursue my careers. And your, your, your goal may be very noble. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a career, you shouldn't study. You know, otherwise I would be standing as a big hypocrite here. I have one, you know, I did study, all that stuff. But you know what? We are not here on this earth to pursue those things. This is your avocation, as someone has said, not your vocation. Our vocation is a heavenly vocation. We were called to live by that, new, by that wonderful life that the Lord Jesus suffered on the cross that we might have. So that's another very important key. The Holy Spirit has to have His sovereign place. Well, I think this is enough. I'm spending half the message just doing a recap. So let's try to cover new territory. And as I told you, uh, for my part in this time, in this conference, I really felt that I should stick to very 
well-known, familiar passages. Yesterday we did John chapter 3. And today most of my, my burden is in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And of course, this must be something that is familiar to many, if not most of you. Uh, the same risk here. You know, it's, well, I heard this a thousand times, so I hear you saying that. But, uh, you know, let's trust that the Lord can open our eyes to see something else. To speak His living word again. Isn't that wonderful? Sometimes you read something 300 times. And at that 300 times, you say, wow, I never saw this. See, the word of the Lord is living. There is power there. It's infinite. We will never exhaust it. So even if we're going through something so familiar, let's trust that the Lord can speak something. Uh, open our eyes to something that is new and is vital in this matter of walking in the Spirit. Uh, before we go to Genesis chapter 1, Let me mention this verse in Zechariah chapter 12, which is an amazing verse, an amazing statement in the Word of God, which is, if you paid attention, is related to Genesis 1 to 3. Actually, Zechariah 12 is so important in my estimation because you have, it's like a commentary of the Holy Spirit on Genesis 1 to 3. Let's read again. Let's go back to Zechariah. And the trick is get to Matthew, go two books back. There you are, Zechariah chapter 12. And verse 1. And it says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within it. Do you see the parallel here? That this is actually like a commentary on Genesis. Like the first verse of the whole Bible. In the beginning God created heaven and earth. And here he's saying the same thing. The Lord stretches the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth. It puts it in a more poetic way. And then uh, it just has another sentence. It seems almost to me as if the prophet here is summing up the whole of Genesis chapter 1. The whole creation. Right? The Lord created heavens and earth, that's Genesis 1.1, and the rest of that chapter, which in chapter 1 of Genesis, which describes in detail how the Lord restored the earth. Well, but here in Zechariah, there is just one sentence that to me, it sums up. It gives you the crown of the work of the Lord. And it gives you the meaning. Why? What was the Lord doing in all that creation? There was one thing that ends up being the crown of that. And please... Pay attention. The prophet here, or let me put it in another way, the Holy Spirit, which is inspiring the prophet, the Holy Spirit is selecting one thing, one comment that sums up that whole chapter. And that comment, we may say, well, he's talking about the creation of man, which is true in a sense, but is not quite the point. You see that the, what is being emphasized here is not as much the creation of man, but what is being emphasized here is the constitution, the nature as man was created. Did you pay attention in that? It's not just saying that the Lord created man, but the Lord has put a spirit inside man. How important is that? Because that's, that goes right to the core of what is man's constitution. What differentiates man from the other beings created, the lower beings created, is not the fact that man has a soul as we mentioned yesterday. 
that we have an intellect. Yeah, we do have, and of course it's more advanced than any other animal, but other animals also have some level of that. There are some intelligence, you know, in dogs, go to the circus, and you, you, you get to see that very clearly. However, what distincts man is not the fact that man has a, a brighter mind. It's funny because when I went to school, uh, who knows how many years ago, <laughs> whatever. But here's the definition. I don't know if it was elementary school or whatever, but the definition I learned about man is man is a rational animal. Hmm, all right. Uh, not according to the Bible. See, it's not that just man is, uh, has a body and a soul and a very, very, his, his mind is so above. Oh, actually, the world is the mess that it is. Because man actually believes that definition, that we are just animals. And we have a brighter mind, and you know, we're capable of building of technology and all that stuff. But indeed, what differentiates man from the rest of creation is the fact that man was given a spirit. Not just a bright mind, a spirit. And through that spirit, we have the capability of a relationship with God. That's it. That's the commentary of the Holy Spirit. When he sums up chapter 1 of Genesis, here in Zechariah, that's it. God has put in us, not a bright mind. Yes, there is that, but that's not what makes you unique. God has pl had placed in us a spirit. And through that spirit, that makes the whole difference. See, John chapter 4 that we read, verse 24, has a very, very important principle. There it says, God is spirit. And he who worships God must worship him in spirit and in truth. There you go. That's a fixed law. And you will not change that. You cannot worship God. I cannot worship. No one can worship God on the realm of his or her emotions. You see? And sometimes that's a big problem with this. We try to confuse these things. You go to a meeting, you know, and there is, and the songs are very kind of upbeat, and there is high energy and the, the electricity on the air, and you say, wow, this is a wonderful meeting, right? The presence of the Lord is there. Well, it may be, but the fact that the whole thing is very upbeat and there is a lot of electricity in the air is not a proof that God is there, or even that God is being worshipped, you see? Because that high electricity, as we would call it, you know, those emotions that we feel when, when everything is, that is in the realm of our soul. And God is spirit, and he who worships him must worship in spirit and in truth. That is the, a fundamental principle in the Bible. And we were created, thank the Lord, with that capability, which is called the spirit. Something inside of us that corresponds to God. So in Genesis 1.26, which we mentioned yesterday briefly. But there you have the idea. God says, you have the Trinity in council. The plural, isn't the plural interesting? God is not saying, I will make man. No, he's saying, let us make man. Is God talking to angels? Which were already there, by the way, by that time. Uh, I don't think so. I never see in the Bible that angels are part of creative work. No. Creation is something divine. When God says, let us, here you have the Trinity in council. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are deciding together. We are making a being that is going to be like us, in a sense. It's going to have something in him that corresponds to us. What is that something that makes man correspond to God? The Spirit. God has placed in us something that corresponds to him. 
Well, we know as, as we kept reading and we mentioned this, we know the whole story of man's fall. And essentially the fall of man, we can, if we want to sum it up in one thing, is that his spirit died the moment he sinned against God. That's the greatest tragedy. That's what makes a new birth necessary. Because on that day, when Eve took the fruit, when Adam ate it as well, they just were disconnected from God. Their spirit, what made them capable of a relationship with God, was gone. You see that uh, before we get into the next, we, I really want to consider in a little more detail today chapter 3 of Genesis. But before we get there, I think we need to mention one more thing, which we, again, we touched on this very briefly yesterday, but let's touch it again. You see that in Genesis 2, there is a tremendous emphasis on this threefold nature in man. In the fact that man has not just two parts, it's not just a body and a soul, no. Body, a soul, and a spirit. So I want to read again. We read 2.9. I want to read again this verse. Because it reveals, incidentally, this threefold nature in man. Two nine. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do you see here three things very clearly differentiated in this verse? And do you see how these three things correspond directly to the three parts that God created in us? So God made trees in the garden that were good for, for food, right? Well, that corresponds to our body, right? To satisfy a legitimate body need. But then the Lord made the tree of life. Hmm. To which part of man would that correspond to his spirit? In the Bible, you always have that kind of correspondence. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you see? And that tree of life, it's something that God really intended man to, to have, to eat. It would be food for his spirit. And there is a third kind of tree here, the tree of knowledge. Of, okay, knowledge, that has to be with our intellect, right? And that has to be with which part of man? The soul, right? You see the, the correspondence? Actually, when God is telling man, you should not eat of this tree. Well, the commandment actually does not start like that, right? The commandment starts like, you, could eat, you can eat of every tree in the garden. That's how it starts in verse 16. But there is one tree you should not eat. And that was not the tree of life. That's why we get the clue. God really wanted man to eat the tree of life. A tree that would feed his spirit. The commandment from God, the negative here is, you should not eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, there is something very, very meaningful in that. And I feel we, we have to appreciate this to understand what is going on here in Genesis 2 and 3. See, essentially man is placed with a choice. And as we said yesterday, God never wants robots. People that will serve him just because, hey, I have no option, you know, so I'm serving God. That's not God. He does never act like that. It's always based on love. And as someone has said, love makes a necessity of free will. If there is no free will, you can never say that there is love, can you? 
I have no choice. You know, well, what, what else can I do? But if, there is a, if you choose for something, somehow you're doing that because there is love at the end of the day behind that decision. And that's what God is essentially doing here. He wants man to choose. But you see, the choice here is between two things. The trees that are good for food, there is, you know, there were, man was eating of them. It was a necessity and there was no prohibition on that, right? But the choice here is this. Is man going to take the tree that is food for his spirit, that's the tree of life, or is man going to choose the tree that is food for his knowledge, for his soul? In other words, man has two types of life and he has to choose which one he's going to follow. He can choose to look to, for his spirit. That will be the choice for the tree of life. And that essentially means that he's choosing for a life in communion, in connection, in a relationship with his maker. That's the significance of it. If he, has, if he chooses, as he did, unfortunately, the tree of knowledge, the choice is, is for a life in the realm of his soul. He can live by himself. He can live by his intellect. He can live by his emotion. He can live by his will. And we know that that was unfortunately the decision that, made, that, that men made, men and women. However, here's the thing that I want to consider this morning. As of that moment, when God placed man with this choice, a battle began. There was a battle being raged around that decision. What is man going to choose? What kind of life man is going to live? Is a life in relationship with his maker? Or is a life by himself? By my own intellect? By my own emotion? That's essentially the choice. And the enemy of God, this is very important to realize as well, he knows what, is, what are the implications between this choice. And that's what the enemy of God will do his best to achieve and what he eventually does. I need to go back uh, to verse 26. There is a point that is very important we need to, to mention. So if you go to, uh, sorry, it's chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 26. Let me read it for you. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. I want to emphasize this word. Let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the earth, of the air, uh, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See, when God creates man, He creates a being that corresponds to Him, that has a spiritual nature. A spirit inside of him. And there is a purpose for that. God wants man to exercise dominion, authority. Mm, dominion over what? Oh, there is a list of things here. Right? Dominion over all sorts of animals, etc., etc. However, we'll get back to this list. There is something very important in this list. However, the full significance of this, of this dominion has to be understood with the two first verses that we read this morning. 1-1 one, one, and 1-2, one, Genesis. There you have a very important clue of something that happened. See, it starts in, the whole Bible starts saying that God created heaven and earth. Uh, 
And the question, when you continue to read chapter 1 of Genesis, you would say, wow, what a messy creation that God made, right? So he creates heaven and earth, and there is, you know, all the all sort of chaos going on, and darkness, and waters, and God starts needs to fix all the mess that he created in, in verse 1-1. And that's not quite the truth. If you read in, in the original language, verse 2, there is something very important, right? In this translation that I have, it says, D, verse 2, 1 2 the earth was without form and void. In the best translation, or in the original Hebrew, the verb is not the earth was, right? The verb is became. And that's very important for us to understand. It's not that God created a big mess in chapter 1, verse 1. No, that's not what happened. Something happened after his original creation, and the earth became. All the mess that you read in verse 2. It became without form, void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, etc. And the question is, well, what happened that kind of created this cataclysm, if you want, that kind of ruined that original creation? Well, we don't have the description of this here in Genesis. But if you read other portions in the Bible, it becomes very clear that something happened in between Verse 1 and verse 2. We have no idea of how much time elapsed, right? Uh, between 1 1 and 1 2. But something happened in between. When you read other passages, especially Isaiah chapter 14 or Ezekiel chapter 28, we cannot go through that. If you want, it's a wonderful homework. And I'll man I'm mentioning this in the hope that you can go back and kind of do your homework and study and see if what I'm saying is indeed what the Bible says. But if you read those chapters, you'll get a clue of that something is happening between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And that is the rebellion of one archangel, of one spiritual being that was the best among all the spiritual beings, all the angels. And that's Lucifer. That's Satan, the enemy of God. And if you read those chapters in Isaiah, our brother yesterday mentioned that, made an allusion to that. In Isaiah 14, you have say, Lucifer. He's saying, I will become like God. Something entered his heart. Something sinful. A pride, a desire for equality to God came into him and caused his fall. And with that fall, when he was judged, and he became, from being Lucifer, he becomes Satan, the enemy of God, the adversary. When that happens, the whole earth, the, the planet where, where we live, it became immersed in some sort of chaos. In some, in all sort of things happen, you see. But it's not God's original creation. All right. And God decides that he wants to deal with Satan, with his enemy. He wants to restore the earth to something that he originally wanted. See, God never creates something that is messy. There is, that's not his character. God never creates something that is, you know, okay, it's, it's a bad creation and that it needs some patches, some fix. No, that's not what happened. He creates something that is habitable, according to another verse in Isaiah. And then something happens, something tragic. But God, He wants to restore what was lost by the fall of Satan. What is God going to do? See, uh, for starters, uh, we, the Bible says Satan is God's enemy. Uh, how difficult it is for God to deal with that enemy. Look at the world, for instance. Sometimes we look at the world, right? We live in a world where, you know, it's pretty bad, right? 
It's full of injustice and unrighteousness. And we know that by the Bible, Satan is the prince of this world. He's the ruler of this world. How difficult it is for God to deal with that enemy. It's like, a, wow, it's a big enemy and now God is, wow, I need to have an excellent plan. Otherwise, I, I can be defeated. What do you think? Is that a possibility? We can never have any kind of doubts about that. No, that's never the case. God is God Almighty. Satan, he was the greatest angel created. However, he's a created being himself. It's not that there is kind of any possibility that, that this enemy of God can defeat God. Not at all. If God does that, that's it. The problem is solved. However, God in His counsels, in His wisdom, don't ask me why. It's, it's, not our, 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 you know, it's not our job to try to figure out why. But God had decided that He would deal with His enemy in a very special way. He would create a being that is actually much slower, inferior than the enemy. And through that being that is smaller than Satan, that is much weaker, through that being, he would deal and defeat the enemy. See, if God does that and destroys Satan, everyone will see his power. And there is no question about it. But when God creates something that is so much lower, and that is you and me, all right? That being that he created to deal with the enemy is us. When he creates something lower than Satan, and through that he deals, he purposes to deal with his enemy, the wisdom of God becomes so evident becomes uh, not, so, not as much as power. There is no question about it. But oh, what a wisdom. How can God make that we, inferior than angels, lower than angels, can deal with someone that is much more wiser, intelligence, powerful than us, that is Satan? That is God's wisdom. And that's what you have. A, a clue of this thought is already in Genesis 1.26. When God says in that divine counsel, let us make man, according to nature, and let him have dominion. And then we read the list of things here, and we think, well, so man is supposed to have dominion over the earth, over material things. And that's true. That is here, right? Let man have dominion over, where's the list? Here it is. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth. You know, in my ignorance, uh, I would say that the verse should end there, right? When l the Lord is making that list, let him have dominion over, you know, fish, you know, bird, cattle, and over all the earth. That's it, right? But did you notice that there is, after he says all the earth, that to me should end the verse, there is something that is added to that. Did you notice that? Isn't that something funny? Why the Lord says over all the earth, and after that, he singles out one thing over what? man had, should have dominion. And what is that thing? And let him have dominion every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Mm, every creeping thing. Uh, who tempted Eve, actually? Uh, a serpent? A, a creeping thing? Do you see here that there is a very... In, you have something very specific but it's a very strong clue that the dominion that God intended us to have, human beings to have, is not limited to physical things. It's not just to cultivate the garden. You know, hey, make it a beautiful garden and, and you know, have progress. That's one. Have children. That's all. No, 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 no. There is a very specific job to be done. 
have dominion over, over every creeping thing. And here you have an allusion to God's enemies. We were made lower than angels, says the book of Hebrews. And however, through us, lower than angels, God wants to defeat his enemy. He wants to use a vessel so small and insignificant to, in final analysis, destroy, defeat Satan. And that's the significance of that last phrase over every creeping thing. Well, Satan does not ignore these things. He's very aware that God has a plan. And he counters, or he'll try to counter and to oppose this plan of God. But here is the thing. Here is something that we need really to understand in, 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 if we are going to, to see the significance. How the, all this thing relates to walk in the Spirit. It may seem that it's a totally different subject. And however, it goes to the core of the matter of walking in the Spirit, of living in the Spirit. Because if we remember the verse in Zechariah, when God created man, the most important thing is that man has a spirit inside of him. This is very, very important. God created a being that corresponds to him, and through that correspondence to God, through that relationship with God in his spirit, he can deal with the enemy. If you take away that aspect, if you take away the spirit of man, man becomes totally useless in dealing with Satan, in dealing with the enemy. And Satan knows that. So if you look at chapter 3 of Genesis, it becomes very, very clear that God, uh, I'm sorry, that Satan, God's enemy, he's trying to counter God's plan. He's trying to do something that will frustrate God's plan. And what is that? Well, to put it in one word, Satan will do his best to entice man and woman. Every time I say man, woman is included. He's doing his best to entice man to live by his soul. That's the whole point. Satan knows that if man lives by his soul, he becomes another kind of, another species. He becomes something that God not intended him to be. And that renders man ineffective in his fight with Satan. So that's the whole goal of Satan. Everything Satan is doing in Genesis chapter 3, and we want to go in more detail over this. Everything has to do with enticing man to live by his soul, by himself, by his, by his thoughts, for himself, apart from a relationship with God. And that's it. If he succeeds in that, game over. Well, so he thought. But that's his goal. And he succeeds here. Of course, we have the story of redemption. Thank the Lord for that. We have the story of John chapter 3 that reveals that God will never, His plans can never be frustrated. The enemy try whatever he tries. The Lord has conquered the victory. But let's go over Genesis chapter 3. I feel that there are very important principles. I, I, I always find funny that in, in this kind of conferences, right, uh, we end up, you know, I had no idea what Dana was sharing yesterday, right? I said, well, here, here he goes, you know, spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. Uh, Actually, I'm grateful because our bro my brother yesterday, he shared something from a different angle of what is my burden today. And he rightly said so. In this matter of spiritual battle, Galatians said it so clear, is the spirit that has a warfare against the flesh. That is the enemy, the main enemy. 
I want to touch here on another enemy, that what he's trying to do is to use that flesh, that is the real enemy in spiritual walk. What Satan is trying to do is to entice man to live by his soul or by his flesh, and that renders man spiritually ineffective. So let's try to take a look at some points here in Genesis chapter 3. Well, having said that that's, that's Satan's goal, the second question would be, what is his strategy? See, if you read carefully uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, you will see that Satan has a very clever strategy in trying to reach his goal. The goal is to try to make man live by his soul. To live by something that God has not intended, not by his spirit. How he does that? And the reason I want to, before we go into this, the reason I feel the burden to share upon these things is because I feel that that battle had not ended in Genesis chapter 3. That battle actually continues even today. So the first thing Satan will try to do is to prevent anyone, he'll do his best to prevent anyone from being born again. Of course, because that's the beginning of every spiritual walk, of anything that can make man effective again as a vessel in the hands of the Lord. So he'll try to prevent that from happening. But if somehow he fails, and thank the Lord he does, I think you are the proof of that. I thank the Lord for that. If he fails in causing someone to meet the Lord Jesus, to be born from above, his, the battle is not over. No, not at all. Now he has a second strategy. He will try his best to prevent man or woman, born from above, but he will try his best to prevent them from walking in the Spirit, from living by that new life that was given to them in the Spirit. How he does that? Here's what I feel that there's very important principles that we can see in Genesis chapter 3. Actually, I feel that there are very important points in this matter of, of this battle for spiritual walk. It's, that's the way I would like to call this message. There are very important principles that we learn from a negative point of view. Through the failure of man and woman, we can learn that there are some principles that if we, by the grace of the Lord, we can learn them. This is going to be our protection in this battle for this walk in this, for this matter of walking in the Spirit. What's the first thing Satan tries to do? I, we, we will need to... You know, I'm, I'm the only one that has Genesis 3 close. I uh, apologize for that. So let me open it again. Let's read from the beginning. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, behind these words, we have like, a, here is Satan's main strategy when it comes to this thing of preventing someone from living the way God intended them to live. And that's it, the spiritual life, a walk in the spirit. You see how Satan, as, as the verse says, how his statement is exceedingly cooning. It's full of, there is something subtle and something evil behind something subtle. He makes a question. It seems so innocent, right? It's, you know, it's, it's just a question. But behind this question, there is something that is an attempt to undermine God's character. How, was, how did God phrase his commandment to Adam? 
How did it start? Can anybody read it for me? What was the commandment that God gave? Uh, and I went from the beginning. Mm, does anybody remember? Because uh, we used to think, yeah, God, God made a prohibition to eat of one tree. But is that the way that the Lord stated that prohibition? Does, does anyone can help me here? Mm, have a very, very shy audience. That's <laughs> oh, please, Danielle, go, go ahead. Go ahead, please. There you go. That's good enough. You see? You see when God makes a commandment that at the end of the day, it's very positive in nature. You, sh you, can't, you may eat of any tree. You have a garden with a gazillion trees. All of them good for your food. All of them are for you. You see how, how God is loving? Even when He makes a prohibition, there is one tree that you should not eat. But He begins from a very positive way to put this. And when Satan goes for his temptation, he says, mm, uh, did God ask you not to eat from any? See how in a very subtle way, Satan is trying to undermine God's character before Eve. He's going to, he's somehow trying to lead Eve to that impression, a wrong impression, that God is a very severe God. It's someone that is trying to deprive you from everything that is good. And he makes that not as a statement. And that's why the thing is so subtle. Well, here is something that is very important, brothers and sisters. I feel that this is Satan's main device when it comes to try to prevent someone from walking in the Spirit. He will try to give you this impression. If you walk in the Spirit, you know what? Your life will be miserable. You'll be deprived from everything that is good in life. And isn't it true that very, very often, a lot of people and Christians, they have this mentality, well, you know, yeah, to be a spiritual giant, uh, like, uh, or, or to be someone that walks in the Spirit, yeah, I'll have to become a monk. I have to go to a mountain and isolate myself. And that's it, you know, I'll, I'll be miserable. That's actually Satan's device. And I feel that he's extremely, extremely successful in deceiving Christians, born again, children of God. I'm not talking about people of the world. He's extremely successful in deceiving Christians into that life. If you live the life that God intended you to live, you'll be miserable. That's the lie. And what a lie it is. Oh, nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, when we live this life that God created us and redeemed us to live, is glory. It's full of joy. Not just in heaven, you see? Because that's the second thing. If He really cannot convince you that you shouldn't walk in the Spirit, He'll try to convince you of something else. He'll say, okay, you walk in the Spirit, but be prepared, you know? It's a lot of suffering. I'm telling you, He'll be miserable. You, okay, no one will dispute. He'll probably talk to something in those nights. No, I'm not disputing that it's not going to be good for eternity or for you whenever you get to the kingdom. Ah, but before that, my friend, be prepared. You're going See, that's his strategy. And I feel that he's very successful in walking, in, in talking us into that kind of mentality. As if God somehow is, is, is 
this being that, you know, uh, at the end of the day, he wants to prevent us from something good, you know. And to walk in the spirit represents something so negative. Oh, the lie of the enemy. You know, uh, the second thing, uh, having talked about this, the second thing that I feel that we see incidentally in this passage, in Genesis 3 from 1 through 6, is this. In this matter, in this battle for spiritual life, for spiritual walk, and I'm grateful that our brother yesterday mentioned this very clearly yesterday night. In this matter, the Word of God has an essential place. The Word of the Lord abiding in our hearts or not makes the difference between living what the Lord has intended us to live or not. It's that important. You see, how do you know these things? Well, where is this in the passage? Well, when, when Eve answers to, to the serpent, you can tell that she's pretty messed up, right? Uh, the, the, Lord, the commandment of the Lord was specifically one thing. He, all the trees are, are for them, and that part she got right. But then he says, you should not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. How did Eve answer to the serpent? Let's see what she says. She says, well, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, correct, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, nor you shall touch it, lest you die. You see how Satan already gained some territory here? God never said anything about touching the tree. She could jump over the tree, climb it, you know, pull the trees up. God has said you should not eat of it. But somehow there is something that becomes evident. Eve at this point is not, the, the word of the Lord is not dwelling, is not solidly rooted in her heart. And Satan already gained a very important territory. It cannot be overemphasized. Thank the Lord for our brother, what he shared yesterday. And I just, I just feel that I just need to just reiterate what he said. It cannot be overemphasized. If we are to be effective, in this battle for spiritual walk and to walk in the Spirit, the Word of the Lord has to have a supreme place in our lives. And this is very practical. Please, I, I know that in our, in everyone here say, oh yeah, the Word of the Lord is, is the most important thing. But my question to you, how much time do you spend daily, not on Sunday school, how much time you spend daily with the Word of the Lord? You see? The Lord Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. I'm sorry, as the last Adam and the second man in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by Paul. And that's something very significant. See, because where Adam failed, the Lord Jesus succeeded. In the same temptations that Adam failed, Adam and Eve, the Lord Jesus was victorious. Remember Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4? And let me ask you this. What is the key in that victory? What is the Lord using time after time after time after time in dealing with the enemy? The enemy comes, oh, you know, this, this stones here, why don't you make them bread? And the Lord says, it is written. There you go. And comes a second temptation and the Lord answers, it is written. A third temptation, it is written. The word of the Lord is the sword of the Spirit. And we need this weapon if we are going to, to withstand, if we are going to walk in this, spiritual, uh, in this spiritual walk that we are called to walk. All right, there is a second thing I want to, 
I, I also see in a very incidental way. See, at the end of the day, you could say that Satan is trying to make Eve act independently, of course. And that brings to my heart another essential in this matter of walking in the Spirit, which is what the Bible calls something as simple as prayer. Oh, you know, prayer is exactly the opposite of that. If Satan is trying to make Eve to act independently by herself, what is prayer? Isn't it just our declaration that we depend from the Lord? When you pray, you're just saying, Lord, I cannot do it by myself. I need you, Lord. That's why you pray in the first place. Otherwise, prayer is not quite prayer. You see that? Prayer is that communication that implicitly is a declaration, Lord, I need you. I cannot do without you. I need your guidance. And I keep kind of wonder here, how much suffering would have been avoided in humankind if Eve would, when, when the serpent is asking these questions, if Eve would turn to the serpent and say, well, the serpent is asking, hey, is this what the Lord said? If Eve just had said, well, you know what, uh, I, Mr. Serpent, I, I'm a bit confused right now. But could you wait a little bit? The Lord, you know, he comes down every day at, by the cool of the day. Let me talk to him. I'll get back to you. Well, you and you know what? That would be like a, the answer of prayer. But however, today, think of that. Today we don't need to do that. Today we don't need to wait until the cool of the day, until back. You can be at school and some temptation, something is happening at work, at the street, whatever it is. But we don't need to wait for a specific time of the day to ask the Lord something, to have this communication with Him. When we are born from above, God comes to dwell in you and in me, in the person of His Holy Spirit. What kind of privilege is that? And He's there, mm, how much time? is you know, in the beginning of the day, of course, when you're having your devotion, oh yeah, He's there. How about the rest of the day? He's, you know, say, okay, I'll see you at night when you pray again. He's there 24 by 7. And every moment in this spiritual battle, we can turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. Here it is. I'm facing this, Lord. Can you deal with this for me? Can you teach me? Can you instruct me? Oh, prayer. No wonder that when in that great chapter of spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6, both things are mentioned. You have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, but you also have at the end praying in every season in the Holy Spirit. Do you see that it is in this matter of this battle for spiritual walk? Prayer is fundamental. Our declaration of dependence of the Lord. We need the Lord at every time. And I want to leave with you just the third one. To make, trying to make it really simple here. Which I think there is this third principle that is underlying the whole passage, which actually to me is, uh, is something that uh, governs, that it, it's, it, it's, it's behind even the other two principles, is the matter of faith, which actually is also mentioned, by the way, by, by Paul in that great chapter of spiritual warfare. He says that we should take the shield of faith. And where is faith in this chapter? Well, uh, I think it's very clear. Satan essentially is trying to undermine Eve's trust in the Lord in a very subtle way. He's trying to undermine God's character 
implying that, hey, maybe God, you know, He doesn't love you that much after all. Maybe He wants to make you suffer, you know, yeah, with the life that He's proposing to you. Uh, and somehow you can tell that Eve is shaking in her trust in the Lord. Actually, it's no wonder that we are called, our Christian journey is often referred in the Bible as a good, the good fight of faith. Because that's the nature of walking in the Spirit, of living by the Spirit, of living what the Lord has intended you to live. Is a walk, is a life that is faith, faith, and faith. It's from faith, as Romans chapter 1 says, from faith to faith. What is that? It begins with faith. In the middle you will find faith. At the end there is faith. There is no day that you can get off this principle. And actually the reason I say that I feel that faith is the underlying principle, even behind the Word of God and prayer, is very simple. If you do not really trust the Lord, are you going to take the time to read His Word? To spend time before Him in prayer? Mm, I don't think so. See, at the end of the day, the only thing that would cause us to separate time, to be people of the Word, to study the Word, to read every morning the Word of the Lord, to set time for prayer, to live daily in prayer, is if we really trust the Lord and say, Lord, you know, You are true. You are the real deal. Satan will try to walk, to talk you into, you know, the world is the real deal. Material things are the real deal. You know, having a career, that's what matters. That's our, our daily fight. But our answer is probably best put in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We read it, but we need to read it again. Turn with me, please, again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, this is the answer of faith to what Satan daily will try to tell you. Daily he will try to tell you, you know what? Pursue the world. Seek your own pleasure. Seek the material things. Live for yourself. That's the real deal. It's so real to you. You feel it that way because we have this old man inside of us. Or the old life. The old, I shouldn't say the old man, but the old flesh is there. The answer of faith is this. We do not pay attention to the temporary things, to the visible things. We are going to trust what the Lord says. The Lord says, this is not the real deal. What I see here, what the world tells us to pursue, the values of the world... This is not the real deal. This is temporary. They seem very real to us every day. And every day Satan will try to somehow make us believe that. This is the real deal. The answer of faith is not. I do not pay attention in these things. Because they are temporary. I want things that are eternal. I want the life that the Lord has for me. That is what is going to last. That is the eternal thing. Our time is almost gone. And I, I just have one more thing that I want to say by means of conclusion.
is actually a little prophetic perspective in this whole matter of this battle for spiritual life. This is a very, as I told you yesterday, this matter of spiritual walk, walking in the spirit, spiritual life, is an exceedingly important matter in the Bible. Actually, if you never consider that, the Bible begins with that spiritual battle on the matter of spiritual walk. And it also ends with the same subject. The battle over spiritual life, spiritual walk. Well, why, why am I saying that? Where is that battle at the end? Well, you know that at the very end, at the consummation at this age, immediately before the return of the Lord upon this earth to reign, Satan will set up, will give power to his men, to the man according to his constitution. And that man is called the Antichrist. And, uh, you know, sometimes we miss some points just because we, we, don't, we don't know Greek. And, you know, I am the first one. I, I don't know it. But some, sometimes when you just uh, break up the original, just the literal meaning of a word, you get an understanding. Ah, that's what this thing is all about. So what does the word Christ mean? Anyone remember? It means the anointed. That's the meaning of the word Christ. It's the same word from Hebrew Messiah. Okay, this is the Greek version of that. Christ means the anointed. And anointed, the anointing with oil, is always a type in the Bible of the Holy Spirit. Oil in the, in the Bible is consistently a type, as a figure, as a picture of the Holy Spirit. So Christ, the person of the Lord Jesus, He is the anointed one. He is a man that lives in the Holy Spirit. You want to see a picture of what is walking in the Spirit? Look at Jesus. Oh, what a picture you have. This is what is walking in the Spirit. And I should ask you, do you think that that life has anything to do with the lie Satan tries to tell you? Like, well, you know, if you walk in the Spirit, you're going to be miserable and you're going to be so limited. Look at Jesus. Would you say that this man, the Son of God, but a true man, would you say that this is a miserable man, limited in any way? This is a man. This is a picture of someone that is walking in the Spirit. And all you see is life. It's abundant life. It's a river that is overflowing out of him. Oh, what a life. Well, but at the end of this age, before he returns, Satan will set up the man in his heart, the man according to his constitution. And that man is the Antichrist. And I don't want to go through the prophetic things. Oh, is this guy a Roman guy? Is this a Jew? Is this, you know, where, where is going to be his, his kingdom? Whatever. No, that's not the point. But the point is this. Literally speaking, the name, this word, Antichrist, is against the anointing. Is a man that embodies the spirit of the world when it will reach like the, it's the, the, the maximum point of opposition against God. Is when the world rejects openly that constitution that God made us with, to live by the Spirit. Here is a man that is totally contrary to that. Nothing to do with that. Is a man that is living 100% in the realm of his soul, in the realm of his flesh, for self-gratification. And please, here is the point. This is not just the Antichrist personal. Sure, that man embodies that. But that man represents the spirit of the world in these days. Well, I think there is very little doubt in the mind of even, even if you're not paying close attention on what is going on in the world, there is very little doubt that
that we live in such days. When the situation of the world is like approaching a kind of a, like a, a maximum point of opposition, of rejecting God, what God wants. And let's live just for the material. Let's live just for our own pleasure. That is the maximum point. Well, you see that that's like Satan's last attempt before the coming of the Lord to frustrate what God is after. The sad thing in all this that we need to mention as a warning to all of us is that the Bible says that that's not a problem confined to the world. No. Actually, when you read the Bible, you see that before the return of the Lord, that spirit of the world has penetrated inside the church. And true believers, true children of God, rather than living by the anointing, rather than living by the spirit, by their relationship with God, they are living in the same spirit of the world, which is the spirit of the Antichrist. Anti-spirit, anti-anointing. I'm living for myself. Not necessarily bad things. You may be doing a bunch of very good things, but they can be opposed to the life that the Lord has for you, which is the life in fellowship with Him. You see that the more we get closer to the coming of the Lord, that's the warning for us. Well, there is one more thing I need to say in this prophetic kind of little appendix here. Why this matter of walking in the Spirit is so important for us to learn. When the Lord Jesus comes, when He returns, we are going to enter into a different order of things. The order of things here today, what, the, what Satan, what the world will tell us, you know, you know what's the real deal? Live for yourself. Live for material things. That's what you see. That's what you feel is important. You know, hey, pursue that. Well, Paul says what's the answer of faith, right? Is we do not pay attention to what is seen. Those are temporal things. The answer of faith is that. Is, of faith is that. I am paying attention to the invisible things because I believe the Word of God. I believe that's the real deal. That is what is going to last. And when the Lord Jesus comes back, those invisible things somehow will become visible now. Somehow those values that today no one, can, no one cares about in the world, right? Everybody says, ah, you're, you're wasting your time. When the Lord Jesus comes back, we're going to see if that was a waste of time or, or not. And the Lord Jesus... Of course, He's Christ. He's the Anointed One. And He's coming as a King. Well, guess what is the principle of His kingdom? How is He going to reign? You think He's going to reign with His brain? He's going to be, okay, I'm going to be a king, a very smart kingdom, and just use my brain. Oh, He's the Christ. He's the Anointed One. Full of the Holy Spirit. And His reign. Read Isaiah chapter 11. We don't have time. Oh, but he has, you know, seven spirits there. Everything is by the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that even our bodies, after that resurrection, they will become spiritual bodies. Can you imagine that? Today our bodies, there is nothing more material than your body. But after the Lord Jesus comes and we are transformed into His likeness, even our bodies will become spiritual bodies. We enter into a different order of things where everything is by the Spirit. So here is the principle for you and for me. Today is our training day. Why is this matter of walking in the Spirit so important? Because today we are just learning. Today is, in a sense, is not the real deal. 
You're being trained by the Lord. Can you walk in the Spirit? Can you be like your Savior and Master? Who is a spiritual man? Who is a man that lives by the Spirit? When he comes back as the King of kings and Lord of lords, oh, is a new order of things and everything will be visibly in the Spirit. Are you ready for that? See, there is another principle. In that glorious kingdom that the Lord will, will establish, that thousand kingdom, the Lord cannot take anyone that does not want to be there. See why we need to learn how to walk in the Spirit today? Do you really want to be in that kingdom? You say, yeah, 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 of course. Who, who doesn't want to be in that glorious kingdom? But do you live today in a way that demonstrates that? Do you walk in the Spirit? Do you make the eternal things the real deal in your life? That's why this is so important. Among other, so many things, because when the Lord Jesus Christ reveals Himself, oh, the question is, have we learned our lesson? Are we ready to reign with Christ? Only a walk in the Spirit today is a preparation that would take us into that kingdom. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about eternal life. Please, don't get me wrong. That is by grace. No question about it. But before what we call heaven, our Lord Jesus will have His glorious kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. Are we ready for that? Are we learning our lesson? Let's close with the word of our prayer. Lord, again, as we come to the close of this time, we, we confess that we are amazed with your grace and love for us. We thank you, Lord, because you are the one that came down from heaven. You are the heavenly one that came to suffer on the cross. That the enemies of God, that people that were dead in their spirits, in sins and transgressions, could be saved, redeemed, and restored to a relationship with God. We thank you for that love. We thank you for the new life that was given to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells in us. What a grace. What a love. And as we close this time, Lord, we pray. Teach us to live by that life. Teach us to walk according to the privilege that was given to us. Prepare us, Lord, for your coming. And we pray these things for the satisfaction of your heart. In your precious name, I pray.